0: <laughs> <laughs> the sounds of React.
1: This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. This year, React Conf 2018, we saw some amazing things. We saw suspense. We got a fresh look at hooks, and now we're gonna sit down with React core team. Michael Jackson's leading this one, and he has some amazing questions from your suggestions we'll be talking suspense hooks the new profiler what react fire and react fusion mean and what react has in store for us now and tomorrow Now i know you didn't come here to listen to me so i'm going to get out of your way right after this sponsor This episode of React Podcast is brought to you by React Training. They provide in-person, hands-on training for development teams from community leaders and experts. For more information, visit reacttraining.com.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the React Podcast. We have quite a full house today. We are actually here with the entire uh, React Core team. Uh, we are at React Conf 2018. We're up at the uh, Westin, uh, somewhere in Henderson, Nevada. And so we're hanging out here with the React Core team. I just want to go around the table and introduce everybody in case uh, in case you don't know. So on my left here is Mr. Brian Vaughn. Brian has been on the podcast before. So uh, you know him as the creator of React Window and React Virtualized. Also has been doing a lot of work on the... Uh, recent uh DevTools profiler. Uh next sitting next to him is Mr. Andrew Clark. Say hi, Andrew. What's up? <laughs> I love you, Michael. Yeah, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Andrew has also been on the podcast. We were talking a lot about suspense a couple of months ago, which finally shipped at this uh at this well not this conference. It was I guess the day before we all got here, right? Wednesday shipped in sixteen six. One of the recent days. Yeah, yeah, everything's kind of blurring together at yeah. this point, I think. There have been a lot of releases, a lot of new features. We'll, we'll get to all of them. Um, so Andrew's been doing a ton of work on the uh, concurrent mode in React. To Sitting next to him is Sebastian Mark Boga. Did I pronounce that right, Sebastian?
3: That was pretty close,
2: yeah. Nice! Welcome to the podcast. Now, Sebastian, if you're a frequent listener of this podcast, will be no stranger to you. We have brought up his name... I'd say at least two or three times every single episode. This is, by the way, Sebastian's first time on the podcast. It is. Happy to be here. Welcome. Across the table from him is Mr. Dan Abramov. How was that? How was that? Was that close? Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Dan has also been on the podcast. Golly, Dan, it seems like you kind of work on everything. He's been working on hooks. Maybe not.
0: On anything at all? <laughs> not on anything. Yeah, I I was actually just struggling. I was like, okay, when you get to me, what do you say? Because like, I'm not sure what I've been working on. I guess I've been you writing docs. Well,
4: writing there's, docs. A lot of <laughs> docs. <laughs> there's like docs. <laughs> there's like that's part of it though. Like the- <laughs> docs are huge, <laughs> yeah. man.
0: Docs are huge. Uh, I wanted to correct you though, because it's not the entire React team here. So Dominic is in London.
2: Thank you for the correction. I wasn't 100% sure if he was yeah. still uh, on the core team. Yeah, oh, he okay. Is. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. Okay, yeah. So thank you for that uh for that correction. Um and then sitting next to Dan, we have Sophie Alpert. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. Hello, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So Sophie also was on a previous episode this this season. So uh, happy to have her back. And uh Sophie has been working on a lot of different things, React. Any any particular yeah. area of focus?
5: No, I mean I just sort of try to help out with whatever the team's doing and so lately that's been a lot of focus on hooks and suspense since we were uh, planning our announcements for the conference but it can be it can be anything depending on the day yeah
2: cool so thank you uh, everybody for coming on to the show today I wanted to just kind of kick off um, you know we've got a lot of we got a kind of a lot of features going on right now um, in react which is very exciting some which are already released, others which are kind of uh, not yet released, but we know that they're coming. And then there's still more stuff that's like, we've heard about words like fusion and fire that sound very exciting. That, uh, but I'm not 100% sure. So we're going to hopefully clarify some of that today. I wanted to start out talking about uh, concurrent react, some of the stuff that shipped earlier this week. Uh, React Suspense, React Lazy, um, we saw some demos early of that, or earlier of that of, of doing uh, code splitting using React Lazy. Uh, I saw that in the blog post uh, for, the, for the React uh, 16.6 release. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, kind of what, uh, what went into that and what was um, kind of the, some of the motivation be behind the React Suspense API?
4: So to be clear, um, what went out this week was uh, the suspense component. So that's react.suspense. Yep. Uh, and that's the, the component that you wrap around a part of your app, and it will capture um, any, if a component uh, further down the tree happens to suspend, um, that suspense component will capture that and render a fallback in its place. Um, so that shipped. And also an API called lazy, which allows you to do code splitting. Um, but neither of them are running in concurrent mode yet. Um, Concurrent mode itself, the the thing that makes React non-blocking and allows us to work in multiple priorities, that uh, is still behind an unstable flag. That will ship in 16.7, so we have a 16.7 alpha, and it is available in that. Um, I know it's a little confusing to keep track of all of these, but um, the nice thing, though, is that you can still use suspense and lazy... Uh, and all of that even in synchronous mode uh, before you're able to upgrade to concurrent mode or before it's stable and all the APIs will work exactly the same um, you just won't get some of the benefits that concurrent mode will unlock which is that we can uh, react and pause for a little bit later or a little bit longer uh, up to a threshold to avoid showing unnecessary spinners and causing
2: jank. Thanks yeah. for
4: the clarification. And then yeah. another
3: clarification there is that we don't support suspense and lazy on the server rendering aspect yet so if you're currently doing universal rendering or server rendering, then you still have to wait for a newer version that will hopefully
5: get out soon. That seems to be our top feature request right now.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it's good to clarify that, like s- some people commented that maybe it's because we don't care about server rendering, but it's just because it can't fit into the current server render architecture. And revamping that architecture is actually like uh, a large piece of work that's we're going to be doing in the next months.
2: Are dynamic imports even a thing in Node? I mean, are people doing that?
3: They are in various environments, so you could either transpile it um, to existing frameworks uh, like CommonJS, but also Node 10 has it built in, oh. so you can actually use it directly in Node 10. It's behind an. Ex- it's not behind the yeah, it is behind a of flag with an experimental warning, but hopefully we'll be in stable pretty soon.
2: Um, yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of work there to do, especially with the uh, streaming work that went in last year. Uh, I know Sasha did a lot with that, and so there's probably a lot of work to do there. Um, next, so so that is not what we would call concurrent React, right? The suspense and the lazy stuff, that's not what what you mean when you talk about concurrently.
4: uh, They complement each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. So suspense, the the reason we call it suspend, is, uh, well, multiple reasons, but the one most people think of is it allows us to pause the render without immediately having to show a fallback. So in synchronous mode, not in in concurrent mode, what's going to happen if you try and suspend is it's going to immediately show the fallback. It's not going to do the thing where you pause for a bit. Um, That is only unlocked... If you use uh, once you are able to upgrade to concurrent mode, so they're separate things, but they complement each other really well, and they they work best together. Let's talk a little bit about concurrent mode. So uh, in sixteen seven
2: in the alpha that was shipped yesterday, I think at the conference. Um, yesterday morning. Yesterday morning. Who was shipping that? Who pushed the button? I think uh, Brian mm. shipped. Pushed the button. Brian, you're the, you're the button pusher. I push the button and crossed my fingers that the conference Wi-Fi would hold up. <laughs> 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 I recently read through, actually, the... Uh, so I was working on the build process for React Router. So I was like, how does React do their build? And boy, did I discover some steps. <laughs> it's, it's pretty involved. Like, I went into the scripts folder in the React repo, and there was like, in order to do a release of React, first, stand up and turn around 20 times. Then... Like it was, just, there was like this list of like a hundred things that you had to do, and it's it's fairly. Is it fairly involved? Were you doing all that stuff? It's fairly involved. We used to do a lot of that stuff manually,
6: and I know that over a course of several months, really, like several of us put a chunk of time into either making better fixtures or um, like running tests against the built bundle to make sure we didn't start with source that worked and then build something that broke. Um, automating a lot of the things that we used to do manually, so our release used to take. Like a day. I remember when we did the fifteen, the last fifteen X release in London, and it was like a nightmare.
4: Well, I also remember. I don't. I, the timeline is fuzzy, but when I joined the team, it was even crazier because we had the cherry picking system. Yeah, like, it was like right,
0: Three hours. Yeah. So we used. If to, you didn't want to mess it up.
4: Yeah. Like, I, we we nowadays we cut everything we master, and we have this really nice script. We used to have just a manual script, like a run. What's it called? A run book or whatever of of steps, and that was a huge improvement over what it previously was. Even before that, we, we weren't cutting from master. We were doing this cherry-picking system where we pick onto a, a release branch. We, so you're we, correct that it's sort of complicated, but
5: it used to be, <laughs> used a, to lot be a lot worse. And <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I think it, it's also useful to look at the reason that it's complicated, and that's that we need to support a lot of different things. In particular, we build a different version of React depending on whether it's for React for the web or for React Native, and we have a separate... Uh, reconciler package if you want to build your own renderer. We have a test renderer. Um, all of that adds a lot of complexity. Sometimes we turn on certain features for specific build targets uh, while still leaving them off for others. We also try to do the best compiler time optimizations we can even before shipping it to NPM so that even if you're not using the best minifier in your app, you still get a pretty small bundle in the end. And we run the, the unit tests against the built bundles, and so we have some infrastructure for that as well where we actually compile all of our code into the exact bits that we send to NPM or to the CDN and run our tests against those to make sure that nothing in our build process is introducing an error either.
6: Yeah, I'm also really excited about GitHub's new actions because I think we can potentially do some of this uh, in response to changes to the master branch or maybe do a daily release of a, a canary. Um, so like getting, yeah, it used to be
5: really long, yeah. but getting it
2: faster would be great.
5: Yeah, basically, it's one command now.
2: Nice. Automating releases is a huge chunk of work. I've I've found at least in the mono repo architecture that's becoming kind of popular these days. I definitely piggybacked on a lot of the work that I saw in the scripts directory in uh, the the React repo. So thank you all for uh, for making that so clean. Um, okay, so we cut sixteen seven. You all cut sixteen seven yesterday morning. Sixteen sevens where we get concurrent mode, specifically the concurrent mode component class, and then also uh, the create root function, which is on the the kind of React core object. Those are both. Oh, uh, it's, that yeah, you it's uh, on React DOM. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so both of those are the ways that you enable concurrent mode.
4: Yeah, so uh, it's a little confusing, I will admit. Um, it's on the React DOM package because it's an alternative to React DOM.Render, but the, the basic story is that uh, if you want to upgrade, there, or I guess there's two stories. If you want to upgrade an existing app, the first thing you'll probably do is you'll go and you'll wrap uh, certain parts of your tree that you think are ready to upgrade in this component called strict mode. Brian and Dan wrote a really long article um Really thorough article, I should say, uh, earlier this summer that details all about strict mode. It's really just to help prepare you for concurrent mode by giving you some extra warnings. At dev time, it has no, no changes in, at prod, so you can just wrap it around anything you want without fear of breaking something. Uh, it'll also do uh, it'll double invoke lifecycle methods or certain methods and user functions in development mode to kind of flush out any side effects that you might accidentally be performing in the wrong place. Um, And so once you uh, wrap uh, your components or your parts of your app in this strict mode and you fix all the warnings, then you can upgrade to concurrent mode. And this is the thing that actually will opt you into concurrent mode. Um, But it'll only opt in that subtree and any updates that originate from inside that subtree into concurrent mode. So if any update originates from like a parent or from the very root, um, those are outside the, the uh, concurrent mode subtree, so it, those will still be synchronous. So if you wanna opt the entire route and including the initial mount into concurrent mode, then that's when, instead of using the, uh, the special component, uh, you swap out the top-level root call, which today is react render. Instead, you call this API called react root. And then on that root object, you call render, and you pass some children. And that is the thing that opts you into concurrent mode. So I know this is a little bit of a <laughs> – as I'm speaking, it sounds a little bit insane, but uh, we, I promise we will document this very well. And uh, I, think I don't think it will be that confusing. No, yeah. I
2: think that's very clean. I, think that's, I don't think that's very bad at all. So concurrent mode – so you mentioned strict mode recently – as a, as a library author I, I, I wanted to make everything uh, in react router com- compatible with uh, with concurrent mode and so I actually just went and wrapped all of our tests in strict mode just to suss out all of the warnings so any library authors who are listening that might be something that you want to do to get ready for concurrent mode just wrap everything in strict mode see where you're you know using old life cycles or the old context API or something like that to get things ready for concurrent mode let's talk a little bit about testing because typically concurrency kind of makes things difficult to test right like one, one of the things that's most that's I think is so nice about these React components, I can just plug in some props and, and maybe simulate some user behavior, and then I'm done. Um, concurrency sounds like it could make that a little bit trickier. Are, th- are there any problems that you've seen or that you're sort of anticipating with concurrent mode and testing?
5: So we have some good news and some good news. The first good news yes. is that uh, React generally works pretty well, and so for the most part, you can trust that React is going to do its job, and it's going to render your components with the right props, and so in many cases, it's actually totally fine to test your components in synchronous mode in your test the exact same way that you have been doing today, and you can trust that, you know, React's not going to get the props mixed up, it's not going to, um, you know, one of the things we do with concurrent mode is we never allow the user to see any inconsistent state, so we always do everything at once. So we'll calculate it behind the scenes and try to get everything ready. But then once we're actually making changes to the DOM, all of that happens at the exact same time. So the user always has a consistent picture of your tree. And so you can always trust that that's going to work. Your job isn't to test React. That's our job. Uh, But that said, uh, the second piece of good news I have is that for the cases when you do actually want to test specific concurrent things in your app, maybe you're working on uh, a data library and you you wanna make sure that the right things get rendered at the right time, we're working on some test helpers that you'll be able to use for that. Those are gonna be part of the React test renderer. Uh, We're also looking at adding some helpers to make it easier in like Jest or another test runner to uh, expect that exactly the right things have been rendered at the right time. And we're gonna try to make it possible to do that so that basically you can mock out time completely and you can say, OK, let's say that React starts rendering it. And it gets this far. And then it gets interrupted. And some other work happens. And you can specify exactly the order that things happen so that you can make sure you're testing the same thing every time.
6: Yeah, we actually published an alpha of the React Jest package with those custom expect to blah helpers. But they're prefixed with unstable, because they might change yeah. a little
4: bit. It's also the exact same strategy we use to test React itself. So if it's good enough for us, it's probably good enough for any advanced use cases that a a data framework might want to test. So uh, we're dogfooding it.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Another one of the packages that that was talked about today, um, well, there are two other packages. Specifically, there's the scheduler package and the React cache package. Um, The scheduler package, from my understanding, and it's a pretty shallow understanding, is uh, is basically something that is not meant to be specific to React. It's maybe just kind of filling in some, uh, maybe just some holes or some things that you would like to see in the native browser APIs. I was reading through the source and there was a comment about, about how you couldn't use request idle callback and there was kind of a post message hack that was kind of in there. Um, uh, with re- with regards to the stuff that you're doing in the scheduler package, it's my understanding basically that, that you'd like that stuff to be sort of built in. Can anybody sort of talk to that or what, what's going on in the scheduler package and, and who you've been working with and how's it going?
3: Right, so the scheduler package is uh, really providing a priority queue for your whole platform. So it's about getting certain uh, work to have higher priority than other work. And one thing that is problematic with a priority queue is to have two different ones. So, if you have two different priority queues, you can only work. You can only pick everything from one, and then pick everything from the other one. And it's hard to say wh- whether high priority in your priority queue is higher priority than high priority in my priority queue. Uh, so, w- which one do you take? So that's kind of a an fundamental coordination problem because you only have one resource which is the CPU in this case and if we have many different ones so at Facebook for example we've noticed that when React tries to have its own scheduler uh, it's hard to coordinate with other libraries and systems within our our website because they will take precedence or, or we will take precedence and uh, ultimately I think that we want to be able to at the fir- as the first step, share this with multiple libraries and, and various frameworks, and that's why we kind of broke it, our scheduler out into this general scheduler package, which is allows us to iterate on this and, and perhaps uh, collaborate with more f- libraries and frameworks to um, see if there's overlap there. But ultimately, uh, this is something that needs to go deeper, because even if we are able to coordinate everything in the JavaScript community and on your website. We're still not coordinating with the work that happens inside of the browser. And the only way we're going to get there is by adding scheduling into the browser. So that's kind of where the ultimate goal here is, is to actually push this all the way into the platform. And that's why we're collaborating, for example, with the Chrome team to look at what this might look like in a more standard form.
2: So basically... Maybe a native API to say hey this this work here has a certain priority, this other work here has less of a priority,
3: yeah, but also make it convenient so that if I 'm currently working at a high priority then subsequent work that I spawn will also have that priority, or if I 'm currently working at low priority, i don 't want uh, my next scheduled work to be high priority by default. We want it to be low priority by default, so you can It's all about coordinating between different systems in a very convenient way as well.
2: Are are there any heuristics you can use to sort of automatically determine what sorts of work deserve high priority and low priority? For example, keyboard and mouse input, stuff like that.
3: Yeah, so there's uh, certain things that actually requires still to be synchronous. And that's because of the legacy APIs that you work with and... And a lot of these APIs, such as text input, have, have deep consequences into the operating systems. And so for those things, we tend to do it synchronously by default. Um, there are certain events that we've d- observed are needs to be serial because they always happen in a predictable order. So if I tap things uh, once or twice um, and tap A and then B, it has to happen in the order A and B. Um and also they are discrete. So like if I click click um A and B, I can't batch them up into maybe like an A B event. I can't have like an A B click necessarily. Whereas with things like mouse moves, you can typically batch them up. You can do things like throttling and, and stuff like that. So throttling is something that typically Uh, where you would use throttling today is where you typically can have low priority by default
2: tomorrow. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. One more question about the uh, the scheduler. Is that something that people sort of opt into when they use create root slash concurrent mode, or is that something that sort of... How do you sort of opt into that in 16.7?
4: So React will use it when you're concurrently rendering with React. It'll be part of the framework, so the user won't have any... uh, Interaction with that package, um, and I think in general, most most instances of this scheduler package will probably come at the framework level. So, for instance, a very common one will be <clears throat> a router. Or every time a user clicks on a link, um, the router can automatically uh, set the priority of updates that are triggered as a result of that um, navigation. Uh, and so the user will automatically get the correct priority, which is, you know, just normal non-blocking priority for that navigation um, without having to do anything extra. Um, but there will occasionally probably be some times when, uh, as in the example perhaps that I should, well, actually the example I showed in my talk today was an example where the router probably would just handle the the tab being deferred. But um, there probably are some cases where the user might want to import the package themselves and, and schedule at a certain priority. But I think, I don't know, I'm guessing it'll probably be pretty rare and the frameworks will uh, give a, a good experience just kind of by default.
0: We've started trying to avoid saying uh, low and like high priority because what we've observed is that people start thinking that, oh my stuff is important, so like it has to be high. And then if, like, every priority is high, then this doesn't actually help us with anything. Uh, so instead, we uh, we started using normal priority for just, like, normal uh, events like router change, and then user blocking priority for things that have to happen right now, such as, for example, hover, and uh, so that they interrupt uh, things at the normal priority.
2: You know, I, I like to run all of my code at... High priority. That's why I always use component will mount instead of component did mount. That's that's how I can make sure it runs fast. That's why we got rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're just trolling me. All right. Um, there was also another API in, uh, in 16.7 uh, from the React cache package. Now, I was talking to Andrew about this a little earlier. It's uh, called create resource, and you said You know, maybe this is just sort of a reference implementation just to kind of give people an idea of how this could be used. Um, It used to be called the Simple Cache Provider, if I'm not mistaken.
4: Yeah, so we've gone back and forth on this package. It's had many different names. Uh, I think the original name maybe is pretty apt. Our current thinking is that um, realistically, the way most people will probably end up using this caching strategy that we've described in conjunction with Suspense is via one of the data frameworks like Relay or Apollo, um, which is uh, pretty good because if you're already using one of those frameworks, then hopefully uh, you'll just get a lot of this behavior just for free out of the box without having to do with that much to your, to your code. Um, But we wanted, uh, you know, in the initial few weeks and months of the suspense release, we wanted people to have a way to try this out. Um, and get a sense for what Suspense is like even before all of their frameworks might update. Plus, there's always going to be these smaller things like perhaps images or, uh, you know, one-off things that you get from the server that don't necessarily need a full-blown solution like Apollo. And perhaps React Cache or something like it will be useful for those cases. I would say it serves about two purposes. One is as a reference implementation, perhaps for these other libraries like Apollo and Relay. Uh, And the other is um, just for these basic one-off use cases.
2: Awesome, thank you. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the profiler. So there's a, a new profiler that's shipped with, I believe, React 16.5, uh, the DevTools profiler. So if you've got the React DevTools installed, you'll now have a profiler tab, assuming you're running 16.5 or later. Um, and the profiler lets you kind of take a look at how, I don't want to say this the wrong way, right? Because it, the approach is, it lets you see how long uh, a certain commit took we're not actually talking about like wall time here we're talking about time that react took to take the work which i think is significant in the context of all of this concurrent stuff that we're talking about because react could you know start doing some work start rendering a tree oh there's a fetch okay now we've gotten back from the fetch now we're doing more work i bet that was kind of tricky to put all together right
6: yeah it was it was tricky um in part because I, I wasn't familiar with some of the code that I had to work with and Sebastian and Andrew were super helpful uh, getting me ramped up on it. Um, the profiler shows you um, time spent rendering your components but it shows you that time grouped by commit. And when I say commit, I mean when React committed changes to the DOM or to the native view. Um, you can see the wall time. It's, it's actually there in some form but it's more about the duration spent on the components and this is, um, this is really important because ever since we added error boundaries, but even more so with concurrent mode, um, the, the time React spends rendering your components, is it might be a little difficult to like, parse with the traditional browser profiling tools. And we wanted to give the user sort of a nice, clear, succinct picture of that. Whereas if you look in like, the profiling tab and you see the time slicing, it's actually kind of spread out and kind of hard to stitch together.
4: Well,
2: and with all the other stuff that the browser's doing anyway, too, you get, you know, you, uh, like some, you know, you render a list of a thousand items and one item took three milliseconds and the rest of them were super quick. And you look at that one and think, what was that? GC, you know, like what was going on? So it's, I I, I like the approach that you took of uh, basing it on on commits. We Uh,
6: also tried to make this more actionable because it doesn't really show you the time React may have spent doing something, which is not something you can improve. It shows you, more or less the time spent inside render functions and life cycles that you control. And we tried to make it beginner friendly with like the coloring and the sizing. Beginner friendly is not a great word. Um, because it's helpful even to like people who are really familiar with a profiler like me, like I use it all the time and the colors where it just makes something pop is really helpful because, um, with a traditional, uh, flame graph, you, um, you might spend sort of more time scanning and looking for the delta between each level in the tree where, or in the graph whereas with this we just hopefully the colors sort of pop and give you like really quick um hints of where you should focus initially um and it, and it works in a way that
2: sort of hopefully hides the some of the inherent complexity of concurrent yeah. Uh, you actually showed me, Brian, a uh, piece of the Facebook ads interface yesterday, that and we ran the profiler on a little bit of it, and there was a, this giant flame graph, which was really interesting, but it was really hard for me to sort of wrap my head around and figure out how to read the flame graph. I guess I just need to search and be like, how, do, how to read a flame graph? Is there any any way that you uh, learned how or things that you found useful?
6: Uh yeah, um, maybe. I think, I hope our DevTools Flame Graph is a little more um, digestible than sort of the traditional browser Flame Graph. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically shows you sort of two pieces of, infor- well, I guess three pieces of information. It shows you the name of your component. Um, the ads Manager that we saw was a Uh, production I think it was like a minified so the names were all single letters which is not super helpful but normally in dev mode at least it'll be the name of your react components which if you're working on an app you're probably familiar with that you're probably somewhat familiar with your tree so it's a little easier to scan and then it shows you a number which is the amount of time in milliseconds that we spent rendering that component and then it shows you a color and the color is really where the important information is so it's a It's gray if it didn't render at all because it was a pure component or just it wasn't part of the tree that updated. And then it's a gradient of sort of cool blue for fast to like bright yellow for slow. And so ideally you just look at the graph and if anything is bright yellow, you know, like that's the most expensive thing. And then you look at the number and you see, oh, but that was only a tenth of a millisecond. I don't care. Or you see like, oh, that was 300 milliseconds. I do care. Um, And then you have to sort of use your human brain to decide whether it's something you want to optimize from there.
4: A human
2: brain. A a non-human brain? What would a non-human brain think of this?
6: Sorry, that's a term I picked up from a long time ago. (laughs) I meant to say, so I mean to say um, intuitively you might say, well, why don't you just tell me what needs to be better? Like, why don't you have some heuristics? And it's a little tricky because as developers, we're often using really fast laptops. And so something might be fast for us, but doesn't mean it's fast for everyone. And also we use our app so often we sort of fall into patterns that are maybe more efficient. So I was helping someone, I don't remember who, but we were profiling a dropdown type ahead component the other day and they had a, a debounced input and it, after some small delay, would filter a really big list of items. And we saw in the profiler that that filter took about 100 milliseconds, but it only ran once. But I, th- I thought, well, yeah, but that's because you typed really fast and so the filter function only ran once, but I've seen people type and like they're often like tick, tick, tick. And the filter function might run a couple of times. So it's important to remember that like what the profiler shows us might not be how the users experience the app. And so this is why we tried to give you sort of the the raw information in a like digestible way. And then we let you sort of decide what to act on. Got it.
2: Uh, and there's also, of course, the trace API, which um, is, uh, is just kind of the way to say, hey, uh, I want to... I want to output something to the profiler here. I want to send the message, uh, send a message to the profiler. Here's the date and the timestamp. I thought that was so. That kind of completes the the package about profiling. Super excited to use that. Yeah. A really quick note. I
6: will say that you can use trace in a programmatic way as well. And the idea is that maybe you you use a profiler around the root of your app or a couple of small parts of your app to track data over time, and then maybe you see, oh, well, this part of my app became slow around this date. I don't know why that's when you can go in and use trace to add some labels to things you think might be the calls. And then the profiling API, just like the dev tools, will tell you like, hey, this was a commit, it took this long, and this was the label or labels that was associated. So it can also be like a nice way for you to sort of dig in and find the cause of something. Even if you can't reproduce it locally, maybe you just you know, sort of gather data from users with that.
2: So would you, would you uh, envision somebody sort of like taking snapshots of that data and then tracking performance over time or maybe just checking out two different commits of the app? And... Uh,
6: either. So we're, we're using um, uh, intera- the, the tracing. Uh, we're using trace uh, a little bit and the profiler a little bit at Facebook um, within New Clyde, for example, to um, gather metrics for our users to see if there's regressions over time. I don't know if they've found anything yet, but they the data they said has been like coming in and looking and looking like it will be helpful in the future if there's a regression. So,
2: okay, let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the big one here. Hooks. What are hooks? F- uh, also known as fixins, smushins. Uh, what other names do we have for the hooks?
0: Attachments.
4: Attachments. Pins. I think we considered effects at one point, not that seriously, but that would I, I. remember seeing the list, and I was surprised by the yeah, fact. Like, it seems weird now. In you could have shortened it to the letters F X, yeah. and uh, that
2: must have
5: been before we decided on the name Use Effect.
2: Oh yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah.
5: So, uh, originally, it was Use Lifecycle.
2: Ah, Use Lifecycle. Huh. Yeah, I like that.
5: Well, but we decided that Use Effect <laughs> was better, so don't get too attached.
0: Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. No. Use Effect is way better. Do, I, do I, we want to reveal the original name?
5: I've told a couple people at this conference already. It was bad. We
2: shouldn't. <laughs> S- Sebastian.
0: It will always be
2: augmenters to me. Augmenters? Uh, like A U G. But augmenters. then no one could spell it, including.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even Sebastian wrote augmenters, like ORs,
4: OR, <laughs> ERS. <laughs> That well, should be the name. It should be exactly that verbatim. You know what I mean, React
2: is very helpful when I misspell things. If I misspell a component will receive
4: props, it tells me, right? We should. So. Have, if you misspell hooks, we should have a nice method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A message for that. We could have. We
2: could have. But you never typed the word well. hook in your source code. Oh, that's code. true. Yeah.
4: Um, if you misspell use. That's right. That's right. Y o u s e. So let's
2: talk about that. Let's talk about the the spelling because there are a couple of things that are kind of significant about the hooks API. Um... I'm going to go through these. There are a couple of things that um, that you know that that I personally consider to
4: be non issues, <laughs> but uh, some you people don't have to apologize. We know your friend doesn't d- d- like it.
2: D- 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 my my friend. <laughs> 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 Let's back up. Let's back up. I want to first of all talk about what these these hooks are. They are ways to add stateful logic. Basically, encapsulate some stateful logic. Um, and add those to functional components, which, you know, historically have just been a function of their props and maybe uh, context. They now have the ability to use state and also to have side effects like in, you know, uh, class components can do in componented mount, componented update, etc. So this is awesome, right? And and, and the, the, the benefits, I think, are, are pretty huge, right? Um, we've seen a couple of people uh, using um, using the hooks in their talks, uh, Ryan showed a, t- a talk where he just there was way 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 less code, um, and so that's always a huge win whenever you can cut down on just the amount of code that's written. So I, I teach React a lot for for my job, and I love the fact that there is no more this or function binding um, that we have to worry about like we do in the in the class API. Sophie pointed out in her talk that hooks are more human and machine friendly. And Hopefully. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The, the Well, so the, the human-friendly, I think, uh, makes sense with the first two points that we've made. Less code, uh, you know, none of the binding and things. I want to talk about the machine-friendly a little bit because I, I think that's actually really significant, right? It seems like a, a purely functional approach to creating components is much more friendly for a minifier um, because you can actually uh, munge the function names and variable names a lot easier than you can munge... Uh, prototype method names. Um, I was talking to Tomo. He, he actually brought up a really good point. He's like, he goes, people will be able to like copy and paste a lot more code now.
0: I thought that was an interesting thing. So I remember moving from Backbone to React at some point. And one thing that really impressed me about React is that I could just like cut some code from a, from a component and move it into another component and it would not crash. So like maybe like I need to also move event handlers for it to work, but it did not crash like it usually did crash in backbone. But that only worked with the random method. So like it's if I needed to move some life cycles, then I need to think, okay, what is the order of those things? How do I merge them together? And like usually I would need to fiddle quite a bit before I could do it. But it's interesting that with uh, with hooks you can actually like copy and paste um so some IDEs uh, let you extract a function. And that's kind of like extra- extracting a custom hook is just extracting a function. And it's also easier to copy and paste uh, some rendering code together with like the effects and the state it uses. And it should just work in another component.
4: One of the things we're, uh, we have plans to build but we haven't yet for our website, for our docs, is like a collection of what we're calling recipes. I think it's very highly inspired by the Re- React router. I think you call them recipes maybe in your docs. Um where uh, perhaps we'll even literally have a copy button <laughs> next to these recipes for very like practical use cases. That would be awesome. To, to encourage people, like, hey, you don't necessarily need to, uh, you know, well, first of all, you don't have to think of these solutions yourself, because we've given you some help. But you also don't necessarily need to you know, go to NPM and, and install this pattern. You can just copy it from our, from our uh, nice recipes collection and paste it into your app and see how it works. Is there a DOM API for copy to clipboard? Or do you still have to use Flash? I think there is one now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's... That would be awesome yeah. if we used Flash on the React website.
0: You we could probably use a hook for that.
4: <laughs> use it might Flash. only work in Chrome, but I think there is one. <laughs> we have come
2: full circle. When uh, Dan first showed me hooks, the thing that really stood out to me... So, you know, he showed me some, here's some use state, here's some use context. And then he said, and now look at this. We can wrap up all of these... You know, use effect, use state, whatever needs to happen into another function called use widget or whatever, right? Use whatever name you want um, as opposed to spreading out the logic for, you know, one behavior across component did mount, component uh, will unmount, component did update. Um, we can now more easily group logic together in chunks. That to me was such a huge win, such a huge win because, uh, I mean, that we're talking about copying and pasting like that really makes these bits even easier to sort of move around
5: that's definitely the thing we're most excited about i think and one of the reasons that we really love this design um we posted the rfc yesterday which is our proposal for the design we currently have uh for hooks and we're open to changing it but one thing i noticed is that several of the comments we got where, oh, can we instead do it this way, which you know might have some slight advantages or be nicer in certain ways. But I noticed that all of the alternative proposals that people posted did not allow you to extract this sort of logic in the same way. They don't really support this custom hooks model. And that's really the thing that I think we love the most about it, because it really has the potential to help you simplify a lot of your code and to You know, as Dan and I were saying in our talks, share logic between two components in a simpler way. You know, I was just talking earlier about what it takes to make a use Redux hook, uh, which could potentially be a replacement for Redux Connect right now. Um, I was talking to the maintainer of React Redux about that. And I think it just opens up a lot of possibilities for simpler APIs.
2: I heard somebody describe this use reducer specifically as like Dan and Andrew's plan to... I guess, <laughs> integrate redux into... There's
4: also my other great sin, which is recompose.
5: <laughs> which has now been deprecated. Which I
2: deprecated, yes.
4: Hey, you did the, you did the responsible Actually, thing there, Andrew. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's yelled at me yet. I think it's fine. You're good, I you're good. I haven't even pushed a change in like two years, so I don't know what they would complain about. Um, not, not
2: that I think it needs defending, but I think there were a lot of common objections to the, uh, the hooks API. Uh, you know, we've talked about some of the benefits, um, some of the kind of, you know, it's, it's, I think Dan described it as unusual, you know, calling hooks is not conditional. Uh, we should always name hooks beginning with the letters U S E use this, use that, Um, so that way it's easy for the linter to find, okay, where we're using hooks and make sure that we're not doing things like, uh, you know, hiding them behind an if statement. Um, also the, um, you know, the, the order in which we call the hooks, uh, matters, um, which honestly, when I'm writing code and I'm calling functions, it always matters the order that I call those functions in. So I I think that's kind of a non-issue, um, the main the main challenge that i saw and that i'm a little concerned about is that darn second argument to use effect i mean i get it but i think it might pose a I don't know, kind of a little bit of a learning curve for some people. So, for example, I saw um, the Kitsa this morning playing around with hooks yesterday. Obviously, JavaScript developer. He's uh, very proficient at it. And he, he made this thing called React Hanger. He he was just playing around with hooks, getting used to them. He posted something called Use Lifecycle. And uh, and it had, like, a method on mount and on unmount, I think. And, and Dan said, hey, 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 hold up. 100% of the time... You know, this API is going to have uh, stale values in these callbacks, which wasn't something that was kind of immediately obvious to either him or me, honestly, on first glance. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, oh, yeah, because he's probably passing an empty array as the second callback, which means it's only going to get run once. Um, Any thoughts about that? or I mean, it's it's kind of a necessary part of, of how the API works, right? The mental model that I always have about these second
3: arguments is that they are uh, you shouldn't necessarily have to think about them as necessary. They're more like performance optimizations. And that performance can be detrimental. It can be that it's really just the application is unusable unless you do this. It can be that bad. But the key is that you're forced to think about how does React handle this? Because React only thinks about one thing. It thinks about the render function over time. It doesn't have mount, it doesn't have update, it doesn't have uh, these separate things. It doesn't have go from A to B as a separate thing. It's only going to get some props and it's going to do whatever it does with it. And as a result, when you're dealing with an environment outside of React, which is what use effect is for, you have to translate React's language into that world. If you just exclude the second argument, you're generally fine. And then you add it to optimize performance. But the key is that you can get also get help. So it's possible to build lint rules and so looking at this where you can kind of track, just possible for type systems to track if you've included everything uh, in your lists. You could potentially even automate this with like simple Babel plugins. Um, so th- it's possible that you can make that easier. But I think the first step is to have the right mental model that you're doing something in a declarative way and that you have to translate into an imperative way, which means that you have to handle all cases, not just the ones that you happen to think about right now.
0: Uh, I also wanted to add that I think with this API, it's, it's pretty noticeable when it goes wrong. But I think what's less noticeable is like when you compare it to a class example, you probably usually compared to like um, to a class example, just component did mount and component will unmount. And these are actually insufficient in many cases. So if you open our documentation for the hooks proposal and read the whole page uh, called using this uh, the effect hook, it compares the, uh, the example with the class and with the hook. And then it points out that the example using the class is actually subtly broken because in the example it subscribes to user by id and in mount and unsubscribes in component will unmount and this is like uh, representative of a lot of react components how they do things but if the id changes midway you actually need to remember to unsubscribe from the previous id and subscribe to the next one Otherwise, you're going to have like a memory leak and potentially a bug because you unsubscribe from the wrong one later. And so hooks kind of force you to confront all these things a bit earlier. And so it seems like they make, they make it a bit steeper climb because you ha- have to like think about them. But then once you get it right, it's probably more correct than what you would have written in a class.
2: I totally agree, right? You I, in that case, you would say, okay, this effect is dependent on the ID of the user, right? And so,
0: so you you would start by not like, but not specifying anything and just resubscribing every time, and so it's consistent by default. And like, if your API is just reassigning the reference, then it doesn't even matter. Like, it's not a performance problem. But if it is, then this is where you say, okay, it depends on ID. And in this case, you can optimize it like this.
2: Awesome. Um, okay, there's just one, uh, well, two last kind of things that I wanted to cover in this uh, podcast. So thank you all for for all of your input on hooks, profiling, uh, concurrent mode, uh, suspense. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about is kind of how React uh, feels like it's becoming more of like a framework these days. For example, react.lazy. It's, a, it's an approach for uh, loading code, possibly other asynchronous things. We had uh, some API for that like in the early React router days. We had our get component API. So it was basically like if you go to this route and you have a get component uh, function on that route, then we're going to go and call that function. It could return a promise or, a call or call the callback when it's done. But that would be, you know, where, where a lot of people did a lot of webpack uh, code splitting. And we still get a lot of feedback from people who are still on those versions that are like, yeah, we, we really found that useful. We were doing a lot of code splitting using that get component hook. We removed it because we didn't want to be in that business of being a framework. We just wanted to be another React library. Uh, I was actually really happy to see it integrated into the core library because now uh, I can tell people who are on V2 and V3 to say, um, hey, you know, if you can upgrade to React 16.6... Uh, you can do your code loading with React, which is where I think it belongs, um, and then the router will just do the routing for you. Um, but it definitely does feel in that regard like, you know, if if we're going into framework territory, you know, it, it feels like in some ways like it's not just JavaScript anymore. Um, it, it behaves a little bit differently if it's in a render than if it's not in a render. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah, so I think when we first released React, we started with... The simplest possible thing that we could and we wanted to really nail that and do that perfectly before looking at how we could expand. And I think we actually did a really good job at that overall. You know, Many people use React. Most people seem to be happy with it. Then we took a step back and said, what are the things that people have the most trouble with in their React apps? And we found a couple of things. You know, we found that data fetching and code splitting are really common tasks that basically everybody using React has to do. And more importantly, they're things that they can't build as good a solution for in user land as we can build into the framework itself. And so you can look at, for example, Jamie Kyle released this library, React loadable, which tries to make code splitting easier. And it does a great job at that but it's also not as powerful as what we can build into the library itself. It's not as flexible and as easy to use as React.lazy because we didn't really have that capability there in React. And so that's one of the reasons that we decided to build it in. The other reason is that for certain things like code splitting, that's the sort of thing where not only are your components lazy, but humans are lazy too. if you don't have to code split your component in order to make it work, a lot of people are going to forget to do that and are going to be lazy and are going to just put everything in one bundle. And ultimately, if everybody using React does that, then it's going to lead to you know, worse outputs. People are going to build worse apps in React if they're not splitting their code properly and that's going to lead to the web being worse for everyone. And so we said, okay, if we can build in code splitting into React, then that means that more people are actually going to split their code because we're making it easier to do. and. That's really important to us as well. The other thing I would mention in response to your, like, oh, is React adding more ceremony to do these things before you would just call into XML HTTP requests or whatever built-in method in order to do certain tasks? I would say, yes, we are adding a few cases where there's a little bit more that's React-specific about it, where now the way that you fetch data is slightly different from how you might do it outside a React app, but what we've seen is that the new methods that we have for how to do these tasks tend to be a lot less error-prone and a lot simpler for people. And so, ultimately, it's going to be easier for people using React, and hopefully you end up with a better result.
0: Uh, I wanted to address the, it's not just JavaScript specifically. Which is, I think, it comes up a lot, especially uh, with regards to the hooks design and the its dependence on the call order and the unconditional uh, thing. Um, and I think that um, people feel uh, people feel that it's surprising that we add a limitation on what you can do, but if you think about it. Uh, there is already plenty of limitations. So, if you, for example, your your render function even in a class, is supposed to be pure. So you can't just like put set timeout in it. So does it mean that it's not JavaScript because you can't do set timeout in it? Um, probably not. It just means that we constrain it because we know that we can benefit. From these constraints because now that it's pure uh, we can uh, render it piece by piece uh, without worrying about like showing intermediate uh, uh, results to the user and then commit it all together and so react takes advantage of that purity and it seems that uh, with hooks uh, is also limiting you but it also gives you the benefit in return which is that uh, you can create these stateful abstractions like custom hooks Uh, that can compose with each other and you can use one hook multiple times. You can pass data between them. And this is what is enabled by that uh, unconditional uh, rule. And if you think about it, even in a class, uh, you don't try to define your state conditionally and you don't define your life cycles conditionally. So it's a bit of a mind shift, but I I think I disagree with saying uh, it's not JavaScript. I think it is a useful subset of JavaScript.
5: I think component did mount, people feel that it's very simple because I, I just say component did mount and people are like, okay, that runs once when the component mounts. And you'd think from hearing that, that it's actually very easy to be able to implement that and do the right thing. And it turns out that it's not easy because there are a lot of nuances that you need to understand, to be able to do that properly. And so we're trying to move from an API that looks easy, but is actually hard to an API that looks a little bit harder when you first see it, but ultimately has fewer pitfalls.
4: I, I don't know about y'all, but when I first saw the glass cycles, I did not think they looked easy. I had no clue what the difference between any of them were. I didn't know where, which what the difference between will receive props was and did mal. I had no clue where I was supposed to fetch things or call set state. So I'm, I'm curious like if we could go back in time and put people in a vacuum and like show them both proposals for this is how I React. And the A group works, and this is how React in the B group works. What the uh, comparative reactions would be? I assume a lot of people would still like classes because they're classes, and they're, there's a familiarity there. But um, you
5: know, there exist know. people who don't know React yet.
4: <laughs> That's true. We could do this actual study. That's true. We'd have to go to the far reaches of Antarctica. I'll volunteer. <laughs> Wipe
2: my brain. Do the Men in Black thing. I'll come to React like I don't know it, and we'll you know, we'll do an experiment. Okay, I, don't, I really don't want to take any uh, more of your time. There is one, one last question. One last question. So we all know what React Fire is. Uh, you Did you say a- React Fiber? Fire. Fire. Isn't it such a coincidence fabric. that they both start yeah. with that? Well, you wrote, a, you wrote a blog post about React Fire. Um, there's this other word that I hear floating around. React Fusion which sounds, I mean, it sounds very exciting, to be to be quite honest. Um, Sebastian, what can you tell me about React Fusion?
3: So React Fusion is this uh, kind of meta-name for our exploration of, of uh, ahead-of-time compilers of React components. So it's a little bit in the style of what Glimmer has been doing with bytecode or what Swelltub has been doing with ahead-of-time branching. And... It's kind of focusing on, if we take a React app, uh, what are the practical benefits we could get out of of static optimizations? Um, And it's a very interesting space, but it's also a very difficult space, because uh, static analysis of JavaScript in general is just a very difficult space, and particularly when you're talking about a space that hasn't had a lot of exploration in academia or or other places. but the the first kind of steps so to towards this is using the prepack project, which is probably open source a couple of years ago. It's still very very early, and it, we are we have some experiment in production, but that doesn't mean it's very production ready for anyone to use. Um, but it's, it's really fitting into this kind of research project. And but right now we're trying to see what data we got from that research and see if we can. Figure out a way to productionize it, and maybe even use, uh, make it palatable for open source tooling to, to absorb. But it's going to take a while.
2: It's very early still. All right. Well, we'll try not to drum up too much hype around that then. But it it does sound really cool. Uh, we actually did a episode uh, earlier this year with Nikolai Tillman, who from the Prepack project, and he had some really interesting things to say about it. So we're we're looking forward to hearing more about that. All right. Well, thank you all for being here uh, with us today at React React.com. And we will see you all
1: next week on the React Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of React Podcast. Show notes are available at reactpodcast.com slash 27. A very special thanks to the React core team who, after a very long conference... Gave their time to sit with us and answer your questions. If you enjoy the show and want to partner with us in producing future episodes, please visit reactpodcast.com slash partner. Your help goes a long way in producing this weekly show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be in your ears again next week.